Make your way in your Bible to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter number 6. Genesis chapter number 6 is where we're going to find our text uh, here this morning. And uh, we're going to look at verse 1 down through verse number 8. Genesis chapter number 6 and verse 1 down through verse number 8. And I've titled the message this morning, God's People in a Wicked World. God's People in a Wicked World. And uh, as we look at this text, I think you'll see the correlation. You'll see what I'm talking about. And I believe in this text where we find the days of Noah and what Noah was experiencing and how God uses Noah, uh, we find great truth for us even today. And I pray that it would impact our hearts here today. So notice with me in our text this morning as we read in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. Notice the Bible says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Most of us are probably somewhat familiar with what's going on in this text, and I pray that it would uh, encourage us to be reminded of what's going on. But as we look at our world around us, we're often troubled by what we see and hear. And what is it that we see and hear? Well, we might hear some, we often hear some good news. It's not all bad news out there. We hear good news of how the gospel is still working and the kingdom advancing and uh, how God's using his people and the local church. And so I think it's important that we recognize those things. But then there's other things that come to our, our ears and our sight, and that is news of the bad things. And the bad things I'm referencing are uh, what we would call the clear manifestation of evil and sin in humanity. Uh, it doesn't take long before you flip on the news and you hear of something tragic that's happened, something that is completely rooted in the depravity of mankind. Now, we're all aware of the evil that was carried out earlier this week in Uval, Texas. A young man entered that elementary school and he killed 19 children and two adults. And what a tragedy that is. Now, many are evaluating this situation. They're trying to figure out what happened. Some are blaming the parents of the young man. Some blame the gun he used. Some blame the school protocols. Some are blaming the police of that town. What is it that brought this action to pass? Well, there's a lot of details that surround the situation, but there's a central reason to why this happened that the world around us fails to see. The reason that that happened is because of the depraved nature of man. At the core of all evil that we see in this world, the root of it is sin. The root of it is the heart of mankind. This is what we realize is that uh, mankind is evil in his nature. 
And we live in a world of nearly 8 billion people. Can you just think about that for a moment? How many people that is? Nearly 8 billion people right now on the earth. And the truth is, is that every single one of those individuals has a nature of sinfulness. And thus we realize we ourselves live in a wicked world, don't we? Now, this same truth is what we see in our text in the days of Noah. Now, most people have heard of Noah and the ark he built, but many fail to understand why he built the ark. What was the purpose of this ark and uh, what Noah is known for building? And what we look at in the life of Noah is, is great lessons for us today, and that lesson is that in the midst of a wicked world, God still has a people whom he has called and uses for his glory. Just because we see darkness, just because we see evil, does not mean that there is no more light of truth and hope in what God is doing. Now, this is true even in our own world. Now, today I want you to understand that the hope and light of truth is far greater than it was in the days of Noah. Far more so, and I'll bring that out as we come, to, come through this text. But I want us to remember a few things as we look at Scripture and what the Scripture reveals to us, things that we need to remember about this world, about the nature of man, about the purposes of God, and the importance of us as His people in this world in which we live. So notice in our notes here this morning, I want to point out some things that Genesis 6 gives us. And the first thing I'll point out to you is that God is grieved at man's Wickedness. God is grieved at man's wickedness. And we look at the days of Noah, we look at Genesis 6, and what do we find? Well, firstly, we find that the wickedness of man was exceeding or excessive and abundant. The wickedness of man was exceeding. Now, our text picks up after a chapter describing a faithful lineage that really brings us to Noah. Now, from the time of Adam to the time in which we come to Noah, or excuse me, the flood, it's been around 1,656 years. That's roughly the timeline from Adam to uh, the days in which, from when Noah and the flood happens. And if you read through chapter 5, you'll see that Methuselah, the oldest man to ever live, was Noah's grandfather. The day Methuselah was born, Enoch began to walk with God around that time frame. Now, I've always been curious why that was, that Enoch walked with God around that time frame. It specifically mentions that. I think we'll find in Scripture that with Methuselah, there was a prophetic indication of judgment that was going to come. And find, you'll find this interesting. We're talking about, in Sunday school about the significance of names and what they mean. And the name Methuselah has some significant roots. It, it refers to, when he is dead, it shall be sent, i.e., the flood. The root to sin, to dismiss, to stretch out, to be cast out, a messenger of death, man of the javelin. It shall be sent, a deluge, man of the dart. All of these refer to the name Methuselah. And so when Methuselah dies, as you look at the timeline of history, you'll find it's in that time that the flood comes upon the earth. Methuselah lived 969 years. Now that's hard for me to fathom. At what point do you consider it to be old or youth or middle age? I mean, 969 years? At what point, you know, does your body start breaking down? Are you 500 years and you're still young? I don't know. 
But just imagine this, this world in which Noah lived in. But by the time of his death the time of the, and the time of the flood, the history of the world has been around 1,656 years. Now, these people in the pre-flood world, as you'll find as you read that text, they lived a very long time. And living in such a long period of time, they produced lots and lots of children. So to what purpose does this judgment then come? Now, this is what our text brings us to in verse 1, the time frame leading up to what we'll see throughout the earth. In verse 1, the Bible says, When man began to, began to multiply on the face of the land. That is what you would call an increase in population. That is what you would call an a, a influx of man multiplying all across the face of the known world. And so that's what we find. And with that increase in population, guess what comes with that? An increase in corruption. An increase in corruption. Why? Because within every person born, naturally, is a wicked, sinful, depraved heart. Every single person. You say, why is it this way? Because of what happened through the first man, Adam. Do you remember what happened with Adam? He disobeyed God, sinned against God, plainly, openly. And by that sin, it plunged the nature of sinfulness upon all of humankind. And not only was there this inherent sinful nature in, of man in that day, we see there was some other specific sinful activity taking place unique to that time. You look at verse 2, the Bible says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now this particular passage is one of great debate. Uh, as to what's happening here and who these figures are. For time's sake, we're not going to dive into the depth of what uh, those positions are. There's typically three positions, but in summary, there was a union here that brought about further evil in the world. We read in verse 4, there were Nephilim on the earth, or Nephilim is a Hebrew term that refers to the giants. There was giants in the earth. And these giants uh, seem to be uh, a byproduct of what's happening in this day and time. And so whatever this union was, what do we see as the result of it? You come down to verse 5, and here's what we look at. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now notice that the wickedness is not small or minimal or just a little bit here and there. God says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. It was exceeding and abounding, overflowing all over the face of the earth. Now here is the reality we must remember that wherever man is, corruption abounds. Corruption abounds. Why is that? Because man's heart is corrupt in his own nature. Now I want you to see a passage that, that brings this truth to the forefront in Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17 in verse 9 through verse number 10. And notice what Scripture says, what the Lord says here. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful, Above all things, and desperately sick, who can understand it? 
I, the Lord, search the heart to test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You know what it says there? The heart of man is deceitful above all things. You see, man in our world likes to generally think himself to be good. But he is not generally good. He is generally evil. We all like to think ourselves to be good people, don't we? Even our precious little children. You look at how cute Jubilee is sitting there. I'm going to have a confession for you. She's a filthy little sinner. Filthy little sinner. You go and look at Spurgeon. He's, you know, how cute babies are. He's a filthy little sinner too. Just naturally. We all are. This is how we are. We are born this way. This is our nature, and we we cannot change this nature. The days of Noah, they plainly reveal this as you come to verse 5. And notice what he says further, God says. He says, Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, can you imagine if you had some way of insight of knowing what everybody's thinking in this room? Or even in our county or in this world? You talk about a nightmare of what goes through the mind of man. Fearful, scary, evil things. What a descriptive statement that is. Now, I for sure do not want to know what goes through the mind of men. But God knows all of this. There's an overwhelming abundance of evil. And so though this sinfulness is spread throughout all the earth, here's what the Scripture says. The Bible says in verse 5 that the Lord saw the wickedness of man. You know what that means? He sees every aspect of wickedness that is in man, in his heart, and in his actions, and in his words. Doesn't matter if they were in Russia or the U.S. or whatever aspect of the land was in that day. God saw every ounce of wickedness that was in the earth. Every ounce. He sees and knows all things. And friend, that's something to consider for yourself. When you think that you have your own private wickedness and that you might can be okay and get away with it as long as nobody else knows. Understand this. God sees everything that goes on behind closed doors. God sees everything. And while everything may not be out and exposed for the rest of the world to know, it will be exposed at the day of judgment. So be mindful. Be mindful of of this reality of sin. Proverbs 15 and verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in some places. No. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And, And so to give a brief summary of these days before the flood, if you read through Genesis 4 and on through to Genesis 6, you see that it was filled with all forms of perversion. There was prosperity. There was material progress. There was polygamy. There was pride. There was pollution. There was all sorts of these sinful traits. And then we come on down to verse 11 and 12, and we get further description of what's going on here. He says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. There's another significant trait of evil here, and that would be that of violence. That of violence. Now, we just imagine this pre-flood world. It would be a nightmare. Imagine giants trolling around with their power and strength. 
killing whoever they wanted, taking whatever they wanted. We think of the slaughter. We think of the control. We think of the sexual perversion. Uh, The list goes on and on. And what does this do to the Lord in his heart? We read in verse number 6 that it grieved him at his heart. It grieves him to his heart. Now here's something we need to remember. We need to remember even in our own day how our own wicked world is and how God views it. We live in a culture where many sins are now socially acceptable as if it's just normal, it's become part of the way, right? But you understand that God is angry with the wicked every day. That doesn't cease. He's angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7, 11 says God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. We remember what creation was like when he first created, right? What did God proclaim about his creation? After he got it all done, what did he say? Behold, it's what? Good. Very good. But the sin of man has corrupted creation, brought the curse of sin upon the world. And so, in a similar fashion, but not identical, our world today sees a great increase of population and wickedness abounding all over the earth. Now, what should we expect from such things? What should we expect from such increase in wickedness? What should we expect from sin in general? Notice with me, letter B, I want you to understand that The wrath of God is expected. The wrath of the Almighty upon sin is expected and it's inescapable. What else would we expect from a holy, righteous, omnipotent God towards a rebellious, depraved, sinful creature? that has gone against their holy creator, the very one who ushers them life, has turned against him. That's exactly what we see. In verse 7, we see the Lord says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. What a sobering statement that is. He says in verse 3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, or also is translated as strive with man. Indicating the work of God's Spirit to reprove them would be withdrawn and their fate would be sealed with that flood, which is soon to come. Now understand this, that God is long-suffering and has been in the days of Noah. He is today. You say, how is God long-suffering if He destroyed the world with a flood? He could have destroyed the world instantly. You understand that the moment Adam sinned, he had every just and holy right just to exterminate and forget it all? You understand that he could have extinguished mankind in that day, the very moment he makes this pronouncement, yet we have an indication, maybe there's 120 years, that verse is debated as to what's referencing there, but there's still time left before the flood comes. 1 Peter 3 and verse 20 says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. You understand, God is long-suffering with our wicked world right now. How? Because He lets the wicked breathe every day. He lets us get up and breathe every day. You understand that 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 is mercy in itself. Thomas Watson rightly said this, Every time we draw our breath, we suck in mercy. 
What a way of putting that. Every time we draw breath, we suck in mercy. And you think about that from the standpoint of of the wicked unbeliever, unregenerate who hates God, goes the other way, lives in his vile life. Every day he gets to live, God is being merciful to him. And he doesn't deserve it. You see, God extends this flood of wrath not only upon mankind, but upon the animals and creeping things. He completely does a wipe over of the inhabited land. You say, well, does God have a right to do such a thing? Absolutely he does. Absolutely he does. Should he do such a thing? Yes. Yes. Why? If God is holy... Wickedness must rightfully be punished, or else he is an unholy judge. Abraham asked the Lord in Genesis 18.25 when dealing with Sodom and what was coming on them. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the answer to that question is yes, he does what is just. The holy judge of all the earth will not let sin go unpunished. If he lets one sin go unpunished, he becomes an unjust judge. He compromises his character if he does not judge sin rightly. And you understand that his wrath has been poured out in the past and it will be poured out in the future. Romans 1 and verse 18, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. Depraved sinners suppress the truth. Why? They don't want to think about it. They don't want to think about it. It's kind of like if you, you know, you, the ostrich sticks its head in the sand to try to avoid something that's coming. As long as it's, maybe I don't think about it, it won't happen. That's not how it works, friend. You cannot think about death, but death is coming. You cannot think about God's judgment, but God's judgment is coming. And as God will tell Noah later, his wrath would come by way of a certain means. You look at verse 17, and what does it say? Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall what? Die. Everything that is on the earth shall die. What a declaration this is. This is the ultimate result of sin. It leads to death. One way or another, it always leads to death. And so God has pronounced this coming wrath, and nothing will stop it. God is patient and long-suffering beyond what we can even fathom. But understand that His wrath will be poured out in His sovereign time. So God is grieved at the wickedness of man, and His wrath will be poured out. What hope could there be then for the human race, since we're all so corrupt? Notice with me number two in our notes as we look in our text as well, that God is gracious with His people. God is gracious, full of grace unto his people. And here's where we see this. We see this in a man named Noah, and by extension, his family as well. And I want to point out two things about Noah that we need to remember about him. The first one's this, very plain, very simple. is that Noah knew the Lord, genuinely. He knew the Lord. 
Now, Noah is mostly known in this world as being the man who built the ark for the flood, right? But there's so much more importance to Noah than that. It's the fact that Noah truly knew the one true God and was a recipient of His grace. Now, notice what verse 8 tells us. But Noah found favor, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what a contrast this is to the whole passage. You have verses 1 through through 7 that's all about the wickedness of man prevailing all throughout all the earth. And then there's this man named Noah. And what do we read about him? He has found favor in the eyes of God. Now, the word favor there is the Hebrew word for grace. What is grace? Grace is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. Grace is something you can't work for. Grace is something you don't deserve. Grace is something you can't not attain in and of yourself. And with this favor, Noah sticks out among the rest of the world. Now, understand this. This does not mean that Noah was somewhat better in nature than the rest of the world. He wasn't. He was the recipient of grace. And understand that same truth is true today of Christians. Christians are not better than the rest of the world because they were more spiritually inclined to receive Christ or something of that nature. Every Christian is simply a recipient of the grace of God. And you received Christ because of grace, not because of yourself. Noah had the same sinful nature as the rest and was just as capable of the evils around him. Noah has found or been a recipient of the grace of God. John Calvin comments on this particular phrase, and he says, This is a Hebrew phrase which signifies that God was propitious to him and favored him. For so the Hebrews are accustomed to speak. If I have found grace in thy sight, instead of if I am acceptable to thee, or if thou wilt grant me thy benevolence or favor. Understand this. Noah's favor with God is rooted in God's favor upon Noah. God acted in grace upon Noah, and as a result, Noah would be the vessel of mercy used to save the human race and thereby preserve the promised seed that God promised back in the garden who would be the Savior of the world. So when it comes to this wicked world and the wrath coming upon her, understand, you do not want to be on the wrong side. There is only one way to be on the right side, and that is through grace alone. Now, we can personally know the Lord by grace through faith. And Noah was a man of faith who knew the Lord unlike the rest of the world. Understand, our salvation from God's wrath is impossible. Is impossible in and of ourselves. We rely wholly upon grace and grace alone. Now, we see our condition described in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 2, if you would. Ephesians chapter number 2. And look with me at verse 1 through verse 5 for a moment. This is just a snapshot, if you would. The whole chapter really brings out even more more detail. But Ephesians 2 and verse 1 through 5, and notice. Paul is writing to these Christians and says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now you read verse 1 through 3, and what do you have there? You have a glim, dark picture of our depravity. It's exactly who we are. We are children of wrath, deserving of wrath. But the transition is here in verse 4. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Look at that and rejoice, Christian. Rejoice in that. You deserve wrath, but instead you got mercy. Why? Because of but God. Not because of but me. But God. But God. We, we were dead in sins. What can a dead man do? Nothing. We could do nothing to uh, save ourselves or help ourselves. And you'll notice that it's even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. He spiritually resurrected you through conversion. And what does Paul emphasize here? That this whole working of salvation and rescuing from the wrath of God is of what? It's of grace alone. It's of grace. By grace you are saved. The undeserved, unmerited favor of God to a sinful people God has chosen for himself. And it is in this grace and this favor that he gifts us with faith to believe in Christ the Son. And that faith then also changes our lives from the inside out. We are imputed the righteousness of God. Righteousness of Christ. Friend, this is the good news of the gospel. That God has provided an ark. A vessel for our protection and salvation from His wrath. And that ark, that vessel, is the person of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus alone, the, the Son of God, the One who died for our sins. It is because of His substitutionary death and resurrection that redemption has been accomplished for sinners. You see, Jesus, when He was on the cross, you understand that He suffered under His own weight, the wrath of God for his people. Romans 5 and verse 8 and 9 tells us, but God shows his love toward us, for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have not now we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, by him from the wrath of God. See, Jesus is the promised seed of Genesis 3:15 that would crush the serpent and save his people. As we spoke earlier of Matthew 1.21, there in your notes, she shall, bring, she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why is his name Jesus? We all know this. For he shall save his people from what? Their sins. Friend, we who genuinely believe, having been born of the Spirit, know the Lord and are not like the wicked world around us. This is true of Noah. Though the world around him was entrenched in great wickedness, by God's grace alone, Noah knew the Lord. But this grace not only saved Noah, this grace also sanctifies Noah. You'll, you'll notice, secondly, that Noah not only knew the Lord, but he walked with the Lord. 
He walked with the Lord. His manner of life is different than the rest around him. You look at verse 9, and the Bible tells us he was a righteous man and blameless in his generation and walked with God. Walked with God. Now, not many in Scripture, it says that they walked with God, although there are many that did, but this particular description is very unique, that they walked with God. Noah stuck out from the rest. Why? Because he walked with God in a wicked world. Why did Noah walk with God? Because of grace. Because of grace. We acknowledge this, that Noah's righteous ways pleased God because of God's work already in him. Philippians 2.13 teaches us, It is God who works in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. Paul the Apostle said this in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You see, see this parallel and union of, of God at work and his people and how we labor and we serve and we walk with God, but at the same time, it's God in us that's working at. We deserve zero credit. And this is true of Noah and every believer. And by God's grace, Noah walked with God just like his great-grandfather Enoch, who also walked with God. And God just, he just disappeared. God took him to heaven. Now, would this have made Noah noticeable in his world? Would he have been unique? Certainly he would have. And understand this, Christians. This really ties into today. In the midst of great darkness... The light shines brighter. You say, oh, our world is so dark. Christ is so bright. Christ is so bright, friend. And He shines through His people, through your life, through this church. We once took a youth trip to a, a very long underground cave. I don't know if you like caving, but I, I've become more claustrophobic the more I've gotten older. I'm thinking, no, I don't want to do that anymore. But we went on a youth trip once, and we all went down to this underground cave, and it was about a mile or so long, and some of you had to crawl through. And, man, it was pitch black. And when we first got into that main room, our pastor said, all right, everybody turn your lights off. So we, everybody turned all of their flashlights off. And it was so pitch black, you could not even see your hand in front of your face. It's almost amazing how dark it was. But then he did something that was eye-catching for us. He lit a match. It was fascinating how that one match brightened the entirety of that extremely dark room. And here's the lesson from this and what Scripture teaches as a whole. This little light of mine, I'm going to what? Let it shine. Why? Because even what you think is a small light in your life is actually very, very bright. Not because of you, but because of Christ in you. Because of Christ in you. You see, we learn of Noah that he was that in his generation. Peter speaks of Noah and he calls Noah in 2 Peter 2.5, he calls him a herald of righteousness or a preacher of righteousness. Now, now some say, oh, if he was preaching righteousness, man, his preaching must have failed. I say the opposite. It was successful. Why? It accomplished exactly what the Lord ordained it to accomplish. And though the world rejected his message, his family was saved with him on the ark. And if all you reach is your family, you've reached a lot. We read of Noah after he departed this world, long, in, long after he departed this world in Hebrews eleven seven, 7. 
What does it say of Noah? By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is by faith. We read of Noah in the New Testament because of, of how God worked in him. Noah's walk with God was a life of faith. And Christian, do you understand that your walk with God is to be the same? You say, oh, it's just so hard. The world's so dark. It's just, there's just so much temptation, so much this, so much that. Put yourself in Noah's generation. You understand Noah's day was far worse than it is right now. We just like to think it's more worse because we have more broadcasting of the evil that happens. You understand that that Noah's day was darker than it is right now. And we as Christians, we have been chosen and called to walk with God and to be a light of the gospel of truth and of righteousness in this world. Peter wrote to the Christians in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Think of what that says. God has chosen us, called us, and he's commissioned us to show, to show the excellencies of his glory in Jesus Christ. We don't look at this wicked world and think, well, it's just so bad there's no use of living for God because all we see is darkness and depravity. Friend, that's an excuse, and it's not a good one. We walk with God because by faith we know him and his word. And as you look at Noah in his life, he did not let the darkness of his world keep him from doing what he was called to do by God. God said, build an ark. Guess what Noah did? He did it. He obeyed everything that God told him to do. You go read Genesis 6.22. All that God commanded him, he did it. And here's what I want us to be encouraged with, understand that God's grace is still upon his people and he's still using his people for his glory in this world. Don't forget that. Don't let the world make you a pessimist. We're already on the winning side. We're already on the side of victory. What did Jesus say? Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You understand, that's an offensive verse, not a defensive verse. Charging the gates of hell. Why? Because Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he has commissioned and empowered us with the light of the gospel to reach the world and change it. We're not on the losing side. We're on the winning side. Which brings me to this last point. I want you to see very plainly that God will be glorified overall. doesn't matter what, what the condition of the world is or what we see happening in the news. God is going to be glorified overall. I want to point out two quick things here. The first one is this. The impact of sin is only temporal. The impact of sin is only temporal. It's only temporary. We, we look around us. We see exceeding wickedness in, in, in some ways. We, we wonder how long is it going to continue the psalmist wondered the same thing in Psalm 94.3. Oh, Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? The truth is, is that the wickedness we see will not continue forever. You say, why is that? Because God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness and he will eradicate all evil from existence. 
That's what Paul preached in Acts 17.31. He said of God, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. That's Jesus. And of this, He has given assurance to us by the raising Him from the dead. How do we know for sure that God's going to judge the world? Because Jesus isn't in the tomb. That's how. Because He's risen. He's alive. He's reigning. He's on His throne in heaven. And so God has appointed a day day of judgment in which he will bring an end to all evil forever. And in judgment of the wicked, God will be glorified. Now this is an aspect that's often not understood and neglected. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And understand, God is not the cause of evil, but he will use evil for his glory. Say, how so? Many do not see this. God is glorified in His justice and wrath just as He is glorified in His mercy and grace. His wrath demonstrates His holy justice while at the same time exalts the depths of His mercy. How would you know how merciful God is if we did not see how wrathful He is against sin? We must understand that the whole of history flows on a central thread, and that is the sovereignty of God working out His purposes to its final end, which ultimately climaxes to the judgment on the last day, with Him being glorified in all things. You see, after that judgment, the wicked world we know will also be at an end, and the eternal state will become a reality. And the eternal state is perfect, heavenly, righteous, and free from all of the curse of sin. So understand this. The impact of sin is only temporal, but notice with me, letter B, that the kingdom of God will triumph. The kingdom of God will triumph. You see, with the first coming of Christ came the kingdom of God. It was the long-awaited and promised truth of the Old Testament. And we learn from Scripture that the kingdom of God has a unique aspect. It is both already and not yet. It is present and also future at the same time. We're already in His kingdom and experience it in Christ. Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. The kingdom of God in this present age, you know, what does it do? It expands and prevails through the supernatural work of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And so while there is a great number of wicked people, understand, there's also a great number of saints Far more than there ever was in the days of Noah. And it increases and continues. The work will continue to prevail in this world as Christ sovereignly rules with all authority in heaven and in earth. His kingdom will not be taken backwards or shut down. It will continue on until we come to that final day in which we're transferred into the eternal state. Now there are some similarities between our world and Noah's world, but it's not an identical age. In this age, understand this. Redemption is already accomplished, done. He's already purchased us as his people, but he also bought the world back. He reconciled creation to himself. The gospel has been commissioned, and the king is upon his throne. But one thing is true that we recognize with this present age is that it will never come to a state of perfection until after that final judgment. When Jesus returns, the kingdom of God will continue until that last day and go on beyond that last day. It transitions, transcends this age and the age to come, the eternal state. 
And this is the glorious future we look forward to. Let me read just a portion of Revelation 21 and verse 1 through 4, and then I'll be done. Look forward a little moment. Revelation 21 and verse 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You understand what that text reveals to us? It's a clear picture of the eternal state of God's kingdom, a new and perfect world inaugurated with Christ's redemptive work on the cross and consummated with Christ's return to this earth. Now, Noah was brought into a new world after the flood, but it wasn't perfect. Ours is going to be perfect. We're going to enter into a new world that's perfect, friend. We cannot fathom the reality of our eternal glory with God. And so when we look at this in the grand scheme of things, God will have his vengeance on the wicked, and he will have his victory in righteousness. His glory will not be thwarted by anyone. What this all brings us to, and it's been a challenge to myself as I've considered this text, it convicts me to be like Noah. In the midst of darkness around me, to live by faith, to trust God, and to look above to his sovereign purposes. To know his power will prevail and to trust him. Though the world around us is exceedingly wicked, grace still abounds. Just as it did in Noah's day, only better today. Far more believers, far more influence of the gospel. So we as God's people need to see the bigger picture. We need to look at what God is doing in the realm of history and time. And what the cross has accomplished both for us and also for this world.